Hello, everybody. Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are finishing up my Beatles series trilogy, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) But today is part three, and this one's going to have a lot of information because, of course, we have their last three albums, The White Album, Let It Be, and Abbey Road. And there's going to be a lot because Abbey Road is a double album, yes. So this is their first double album and we are just jumping right on into it. So we last left off where they released Magical Mystery Tour and they released the Yellow Submarine movie and then subsequently the Yellow Submarine soundtrack came out later. But after that point, in February 1968, the Beatles traveled to Rishikesh, India to take part in a three-month meditation guide course, and they met with the Maharishi Yogi. Because, of course, we all know that George has been heavily into transcendental meditation and Indian culture. Ever since he took LSD, it's just been something that his brain has been expanding upon. And so he wanted to take the Beatles and all of their wives, and Donovan actually went as well. Donovan and a couple of other celebrities went as well. So it wasn't just the Beatles and their respective wives. It was a few other of their friends too. And so they all went and they spent some time in India. And their time in India actually marked one of the band's most prolific periods, yielding in numerous songs that came about from this trip including a majority of those songs were to be featured on their next album, The White Album, and sprinkled throughout a couple of their other albums as well. However, Ringo left after only 10 days because he was having a bit of stomach problems. You know, Indian food's quite spicy, so I'm sure Ringo couldn't really handle that. So Ringo said, bye, I'm leaving. And then Paul eventually grew bored, and then he left a month later. So it was just John and George and their respective wives, Patty and Cynthia. Creativity turned to question one electronics technician known as Magic Alex, who, along with Alan Klein, is one of the worst people in this story ever. But Magic Alex suggested that the Maharishi was attempting to manipulate them. Yes, he alleged that the Maharishi had made sexual advances to the women that were attending this yogi guide course, and he persuaded John, okay, to leave. John said, all right, I'm leaving. Peace out. I can't abide by this shit. I'm leaving. So he abruptly left after just two months into the course, and George was a bit less convinced. He was like, "Mm, no, I don't really believe that stupid story. You guys can leave. I'm going to stay here with Patty. Peace. And so everyone else left. George stayed behind. At some point, George eventually came back, of course. But Paul said that we made a big mistake. We thought there was more to him than there was. So they left feeling a bit iffy reflecting on their trip to India. Obviously, George was a big fan. The other ones took their inspiration when it came to them and This trip did, though, in part inspire a lot of songs that were to come on their next three albums, mainly, though, the White Album, but again, it gets a bit trickled down. And this India trip also sparked the beginning of what Cynthia Lennon calls her break up with John Lennon, because there was an incident where she was going along with them and they were about to get on a train. And one of the people ushering in everyone to get on the train stopped her 
you know, he said, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? Like, he didn't know that she was John Lennon's wife. And John didn't even, like, look back behind him. He just kept on walking. And that's when Cynthia was like, this is the end, isn't it? Like, this is totally the end of our marriage, isn't it? Because, you know, they've been having some marital problems. It's pretty much well known that, you know, they were to divorce. Um, But this is just the start of their decline. So now when they come back, they're faced with what to do. So at this point in the story, I know I talked about Brian Epstein's passing, but at this point in the story, I'm going to talk about Apple Core, the beginning of their Apple company. And Brian was initially a part of those very early talks. Um, And then when he passed away, they went on And they went through with the plans to enact it. However, I'm just going to start with the beginning of how Apple Corps even came to conception. So I'm going to mention Brian maybe once in this whole thing, just because, again, like he was part of those very early conversations. But just keep that in mind. You know what I mean? Like eventually in the story, you know, Brian passes away. I already talked about that in my last episode It's all kind of happening around the same time, you know, in this time in 67, 68, you know what I mean? So we're still in this time period. I just wanted to put that little asterisk in case maybe some of you are a little confused. But anyway, so now the Beatles are back in England. They're in talks with their accountants about what to do with their tax money. So their accountants informed the Beatles that they had two million pounds that they could either invest in a business venture or else they would lose the money to the inland revenue because corporate business taxes were lower than their individual tax bills. So they had a bit of money to where if they wanted to, they could invest it into a business. And according to Peter Brown, I mentioned him in the last episode, he was the personal assistant to Brian Epstein, and he was a good friend of Brian Epstein. So according to Peter Brown, activities to find tax shelters for income that the Beatles generated began as early as 1963-64 when Walter Strach was put in charge. So this has just been like money that's been accumulating over the course of time. And so now that they were looking at their finances, they saw that they had a good chunk of change to, to figure out what they wanted to do with this, basically. And so the first steps into that direction were the foundation of Beatles Limited and, in early 1967, Beatles and Company. So this is their first big venture into branching out a little bit more and making them a bit more corporate. Beatles publicist Derek Taylor remembered that Paul had the name for the company when he visited Taylor's company flat in London. He says, We're starting a brand new form of business. So what is the first thing that a child is taught when he begins to grow up? A is for Apple. And then Paul suggested that in the addition of Apple that he wanted it to be Apple Core. And Core spelled C-O-R-E, you know, like an Apple Core. But they couldn't register the name, so they had to use the spelling of C-O-R-P-S. It's still said as Apple Core, but it just is a bit different. So now this is where Apple Core comes into play. So now that a new business structure was found with a lower tax rate, Brian Epstein at the time wondered what to do with it to justify it to the police, okay? And originally, they thought of it mostly as a merchandising company. 
And according to Cynthia Lennon, she says, "The idea Brian came up with was a company called Apple. His idea was to plow their money into a chain of shops, not unlike Woolworth in concept. Apple boutiques, Apple posters, Apple records. Brian needed an outlet for his boundless energy." Another personal assistant to Brian Epstein, whose name is Alastair Taylor, remembered this. We set up an exclusive board of Apple before Brian died, including Brian, the accountant, a solicitor, Neil Aspinall, myself, and then sat down to work out ways of spending the money. One big idea was to set up a chain of shops designed only to sell cards, birthday cards, Christmas cards, anniversary cards. And then when the boys heard about that, they all condemned the scheme as the most boring yet. Sure that they could come up with much better brainwaves, they began to get involved themselves. And so this is where it comes back around where I mentioned that in the middle of setting up, you know, all of these things, and in the middle of magical mystery tour, yellow submarine, like all of this, it's happening like all at the same time. Brian dies on the twenty seventh of August, and so this pressed the Beatles to hasten their plans to gain control of their own finances. Because Brian was their manager, and he was really on top of keeping track of how their money was spent, along with their accountant. In addition to providing an umbrella to cover the Beatles' own financial and business affairs, Apple was intended to provide financial support to anyone else struggling to get worthwhile artistic projects off the ground. And so this is where they start to bring in other people, like if someone had like an album or. An art project, or they were a writer. They wanted to get their foot off the ground. Like they would bring them into their company, and they would publish them. So this is kind of what Apple has been trying to do. Like they bring on Apple artists, and they put them out on their own Apple records. So this is kind of what they were trying to achieve. So Ringo was quoted as saying of this business venture. We tried to form Apple with Brian's brother Clive Epstein, but he wouldn't have it. He didn't believe in us, I suppose. He didn't think we could do it. He thought we were four wild men, and we were going to spend all his money and make him broke. But that was the original idea of Apple—to form it with Brian's record company. We thought now Brian's gone. Let's really amalgamate and let's get this thing going. Let's make records and get people on our label and things like that. It was a family tie, and we thought it would be a good idea to keep it in. So in May, John and Paul traveled to New York for the public unveiling of the Beatles' new business venture, Apple Corp. The enterprise strained the group financially with a series of unsuccessful projects handled largely by members of the Beatles' entourage. Who were given their jobs, kind of regardless of their talent and experience. So that's one of the things that led them into the ground with this. And among its numerous subsidiaries were Apple Electronics. Yeah, Apple Electronics. We all know what happens with Apple in the future, right? That's interesting. I'll mention that in a second because actually the two come into play. So they initially had Apple Electronics as one of their subsidiaries, which is so fascinating. But this established to foster technological innovations with Magic Alex as the leader, and they had an Apple retailing. They had like all these different kind of shops. They had like a fashion boutique. They had like Apple watches. I'm not even kidding. They had Apple watches. 
They had all these kinds of things like fashion items, tech items. It was weird. George Harrison later said, Basically, it was chaos. John and Paul got carried away with the idea and blew millions, and Ringo and I just had to go along with it. So one of the very first records that got pressed with Apple is a birthday gift that Ringo gave to his wife Maureen for her 22nd birthday. Ringo asked Frank Sinatra to perform and record a cover of the song The Lady is a Tramp just for Maureen. So Frank Sinatra comes into the Apple Studios, he records the cover, and it gets pressed on like a 45 or something, and it's marked as Apple One because it was the first record that got pressed by Apple, and it was only one of one. So no other copies of this were made. It was just for Maureen. It's said to be one of the most expensive Beatles slash Apple rarities out there because there's only one, and it's said that the record is still in the Star family. So it's probably said that maybe Maureen, her family has it, or Ringo has it, but it's with them. So so this is where I just wanted to dive deep for my own personal reasons, because of course we know now that Steve Jobs, he creates Apple as we know it. But of course, the Beatles had Apple before in 1967, 68. And so you're probably wondering to yourselves, did they ever cross paths with each other? Did they ever have some kind of legal battle? Yes. Let me answer all of those questions right now. So to kind of keep this simple, because they're both called Apple, I'm going to say one as British Apple and one as American Apple. So we all know which one is which, right? British Apple is the Beatles. American Apple is Steve Jobs. Okay, great. In 1978, British Apple filed a lawsuit against American Apple for trademark infringement. The suit was settled in 1981 with the payment of $80,000 to British Apple. As a condition of the settlement, American Apple agreed to stay out of the music business, which we all know doesn't happen. A dispute subsequently arose in 1989 when British Apple sued again, alleging that American Apple and their computer machines had the ability to play back MIDI music, and this was a violation of the 1981 settlement agreement. And then later in 1991, another settlement of around $26.5 million was reached. And then later in September 2003, American Apple was sued again by British Apple, this time for introducing iTunes and the iPod. Yes, this is something that we don't even think about because we have iTunes. We all probably had an iPod when it came out back in the day. But this was in breach of their settlement between British Apple and American Apple. So when American Apple came out with iTunes and the iPod, British Apple sued them again because this was in violation of their agreement to not distribute music. Can you believe that? And then, right, so there was a trial that opened on the 29th of March 2006 in the UK and in a judgment issued on the 8th of May 2006, British Apple lost the case. So that is why we now have the iPod and we now have iTunes music because yes, 
They fought it out in the court system. Can you imagine if American Apple was not able to come out with iTunes and the iPod? That would have drastically changed the course of online music distribution probably forever. I'm not even kidding. It changed the course of music distribution online, like forever. So without the introduction of iTunes in the iPod, we wouldn't have had all these things that we have now with like Spotify and yada yada. So you have to thank British Apple, aka the Beatles, for coming in here and trying to win this lawsuit, but British Apple lost the case. And so that is why iTunes and the iPod were able to be released. A year later, on February 5th, 2007, American Apple and British Apple announced a settlement of their trademark dispute under which American Apple took ownership of all the trademarks related to Apple. This included all designs of the British Apple's Granny Smith Apple logo that we all know today. And American Apple licensed certain of those trademarks back to British Apple for their continued use. So this is mind-blowing to me. I don't know if it's mind-blowing to anyone else, but it's mind-blowing to me because Steve Jobs has the Beatles in their back pocket. You wouldn't even think that, would you? You wouldn't even think that all the Apple logos and all of the Apple essence that the Beatles Apple has you wouldn't think that that was licensed out by American Apple because of the settlement between them. You wouldn't think that, but that's the case. That's the truth. It's mind-blowing. The settlement ended the ongoing trademark lawsuit between the companies with each party bearing its own legal cost and American Apple continued using its name and logos on iTunes. The settlement includes terms that are confidential, and American Apple relied on the Beatles' first use in 1968 to establish ownership and priority of the trademark Apple Music prior to a 1985 use by a musician of Apple Jazz from musical concerts. So basically, the Beatles, when they were first coming out with Apple, they had a certain concept of the Apple for their logo as their idea. And when American Apple went to fight back against them in their lawsuit, they said, well, this is their first intended use here in 1968, and we have a little bit different thing going on here. So that's kind of what helped American Apple win as well. So maybe some of you probably remembered that when iTunes came out for a long time, the Beatles' entire catalog was not on iTunes at all. You couldn't find the Beatles on iTunes, literally. It just wasn't on there. You know, in 2007, after American Apple won and iTunes was released, the Beatles, I think, just took some time to not want to put their music on iTunes. But on the 16th of November 2010, American Apple launched the Beatles' entire catalog in the iTunes store. And it comes full circle, doesn't it? I just thought that was really, really fascinating to just end with that whole note of American Apple, Steve Jobs versus British Apple, the Beatles. Who wins? In the end, it's Steve Jobs. Of course he wins, right? So I just thought that that was really, really interesting. All right, we're moving right along to the White Album. This is their first and their only double LP that the Beatles ever came out with. 
but because the White Album was a really ambitious project that they did because it's a double LP, I think we have to treat it with a little bit of a different mindset because yeah, at the time, you know, this was definitely really, really different and also all the different music styles that they implemented in the White Album is definitely different. You know, the Beatles have Apple Core set up their back in England from the India trip. They're figuring out all these things. Now they are in the studio and wanting to go different entirely in a new direction with their music. The Beatles decided to record the White Album. And again, this was their only double LP in their discography. And the cover is plain with only their name embossed on the cover. And this is a direct reversal of the colorful psychedelic covers from them before, of course, Literally before this album, you had Yellow Submarine, you had Magical Mystery Tour, you had Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, those are such colorful, vibrant, psychedelic album covers that when you have literally the white album, which is just a basic, plain white cover with only the Beatles name embossed on it, you're like, wow, that is so different, but it works. I think it works. And so the Beatles, some people call it the White Album, so I'm going to call it the White Album, released on the 22nd of November in 1968 on the fifth anniversary of their second album with the Beatles. A total of 34 new tracks were released in 1968 and 30 were contained on this one double LP. So recording began at Abbey Road Studios on the 30th of May and studio work occupied most of their time until the final session in mid-October. The Beatles was the group's first album to appear on the Apple label. The change from Parlophone, their original record company, onto their Apple Records had first taken place with the release of the Hey Jude single in August of 1968. Despite the fact that it was a double album, it entered the chart at number one and occupied that position for eight of the 22 weeks it spent on the chart. And then the U.S. was even more impressed, and they had it on there for a nine-week stay in the top spot during an initial chart run of 65 weeks. So now let's really break it down. How did the Beatles create the White Album? Well, the group booked time at Abbey Road through July. The open-ended studio time led to a new way of working on songs. Instead of tightly rehearsing a backing track, the group recorded all the rehearsals and jamming, then added overdubs to the best takes that they would do. And so this method of coming out with music is definitely very prevalent on Let It Be, which is their next album. Of course, it's very raw and it's very not incredibly overdubbed at all. It's very stripped back. So the White Album is the precursor to that. So that's what they were doing here. The production aesthetic ensured that the album's sound was scaled down and less reliant on studio innovation than Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. George's song Not Guilty was left off of the album, though they had 102 takes for the song. Only 16 of the album's 30 tracks feature all four band members performing. Paul and John sometimes recorded simultaneously in different studios with different engineers and George Martin's influence had gradually faded, and he left abruptly to go on a holiday during the recording sessions, leaving Chris Thomas in charge of the White Album's production mostly. And so during these sessions, the band upgraded from a four-track recording to an eight-track. 
And as work began, Abbey Road Studios possessed, but still had yet to install, an 8-track machine that had supposedly been sitting unused for several months. This was in accordance, though, with EMI's policy of testing their new gear before they put it into use. And so with the 8-track just kind of sitting there, the Beatles were like, why don't we use that? It's been sitting here. You haven't used it yet. Let's use it for this one. And so that's where the upgrade from the 4-track from their other albums to the 8-track was on this album. And the Beatles recorded Hey Jude and Dear Prudence at Trident Studios because it had the 8-track console already installed. So while Abbey Road was getting that set up, they were kind of simultaneously going back and forth between Trident Studios and Abbey Road. And engineers Ken Scott and Dave Harries installed the machine in Abbey Road's Studio 2. The band held their first and only 24-hour session at Abbey Road during the final mixing and sequencing for the album. This session was attended by John, Paul, and George Martin, because George Harrison had left on a trip to the U.S. the day before, so it was just those guys. And unlike most albums, there was no customary three-second gap between each of the tracks. And the master was edited so that the songs kind of segued all together with no gaps in between. It either had a straight edit, it either had a crossfade, or it had um, like an unassuming uh, little blip piece of music in between. Kind of that would, again, segue from one song into another. Um, so there weren't any kind of gaps in between at all. It all flowed nicely. And the White Album contains such a wide range of musical styles. And these styles include but aren't limited to rock and roll, blues, folk, country, reggae, yes, reggae, avant-garde, hard rock, music hall, and psychedelic music. I don't know why I said hard like that. I meant to say hard rock. That's so weird. Um, but yeah, so there's so many more styles that they included. It's just like a plethora of different stuff that they were trying out. The only Western instrument available to the group during their Indian visit was the acoustic guitar. So while they were in India on their trip, they didn't have any other kind of instruments. They only had acoustic guitars available to them. So while they were in India and they were coming up with a new material, they were creating the songs via the acoustic guitar, which is why a lot of the songs on the White Album are acoustic-led. So, there you go. George Martin said that he was actually very against the idea of a double album at the time and suggested that the group reduce the number of songs on the album just to form one single cohesive album, only featuring their strongest work that they were to create during the recording sessions, but the band refused. Um, reflecting on the album years later, George Harrison said that some tracks could have been released as B-sides or withheld, but, quote, there was a lot of ego in that band. And he also supported the idea of the double album to clear out the group's back catalog of songs. So they had so many songs that they were just working on and they had shelved. And so they thought, what the hell, let's just get it all out of our system and let's put it on one massive, huge double album. That's what they were trying to do here. Ringo felt that the album should have been two separate records, which he jokingly called the White Album and the Whiter Album. <laughs> And Paul said that the record was fine as it was. He said, it was great. It sold. It's the Bloody Beatles White Album. Shut up. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I think some people might be a bit, maybe, off-put by the fact that the White Album is a double LP, but 
I think it's fine. I think it works. Yeah, some songs are kind of filler for sure. And I don't listen to all songs on this album, but it's a great album all around, you know? So during the recording sessions for the White Album, each member of the band began to increasingly assert themselves as individual artists who frequently found themselves at odds with one another. Paul described the sessions as a turning point for the group because there was a lot of friction during that album, we were just about to break up, and that was tense in itself. John said, The breakup of the Beatles can be heard on that album. Recording engineer Jeff Emmerich had worked with the group since Revolver, but he eventually became disillusioned with the sessions. He overheard George Martin criticizing Paul's vocals performance while recording Obla Di Obla Da, to which Paul replied, Well, you come down and sing it then. So Jeff was kind of not really feeling this. And on the 16th of July, Emmerich announced that because of the frequent arguing and tension that he was no longer willing to work with the Beatles, and he left the studio in the midst of a session. So he said, peace out, I'm leaving, bye. Um, but the sessions continued on. The White Album sessions marked the first appearance in the studio of Yoko Ono. Here we go, folks. Okay, Yoko went with John to Abbey Road to work on Revolution 1. As we know it, it's just the song Revolution, right? But there were nine iterations, and uh, hmm, we know what Revolution number 9 is. I'm not going to go into that because that is a clusterfuck. So I'm not going into that. But yeah, we all know Yoko Ono. She comes in. She meets John previously at the Indica Gallery. I briefly mentioned that in the last episode. And with John and Cynthia's marriage on the rocks, John has an affair with Yoko Ono. Cynthia one day comes in and she catches the two of them in bed. And it subsequently starts off the divorce. John actually divorced her. She didn't come to him with the divorce papers. He came to her stating that she cheated on him with someone else and that that wasn't true. So it was a messy situation. So at this time, Yoko is introduced into the studio. And this was definitely very strange because up until this point, the Beatles had a rule in the studio that they were to record by themselves, that they would have no outside influence from their girlfriends or wives in the studio. However, Yoko was here all of a sudden. And so the Beatles kind of had to uh, put up with it and shut up because John wouldn't have it any other way. John's devotion to Yoko over the other Beatles made working conditions very difficult. And Paul had a side piece. I'm not going to call her his girlfriend because this is a weird situation. I'm going to call her his side piece, okay? And Paul's side piece, <laughs> Francie Schwartz, was also present at some of the sessions, as were the other Beatles wives, Patty Boyd and Maureen Starkey. So. You're probably wondering to yourself, Lindsay, you said in the last episode that Paul was dating actress Jane Asher. And yes, that is correct. They were dating and they were actually engaged. However, at this time, Paul was sleeping around with this woman named Francie Schwartz. He started an affair with Francie while he was engaged to Jane Asher, but Jane broke off the engagement when one day she caught them in bed together. And so that was the end of Paul and Jane subsequently. Francie was an American writer, and she saw in the papers that Apple Corps had been formed. And so, like I mentioned, you know, Apple Corps was inviting all these artists um, to come on to their label and say, we'll take care of you, we'll promote your work, we'll publish your this, that, and the other. 
So because she was a writer, she went to London in 1968 to see if they were interested in taking on one of her scripts for a book. And it was here that she met Paul and they formed a connection. And he actually invited her to live at his house and he gave her a job working at Apple writing press releases for the other Apple artists, which is mind-blowing. Like, oh my God, you're bringing your side piece around to everybody. <laughs> like, as if everyone doesn't know that you're sleeping with her and you're engaged to Jane Asher. Oh my God, messy as fuck. But when Jane and Paul broke off their engagement, he ended things with Francie pretty swiftly. And it was rumored that he used Francie as a means of breaking things off with Jane Asher. Why he would do that instead of just saying, Jane, we're done, aren't we? Let's just go. I don't know. That's what it was. Um, I just kind of wanted to put that little funny anecdote in there that um, Paul is messy as fuck. Okay. George and Ringo chose to distance themselves partway through the recording sessions and they flew out to California on June the 7th so that George could film his scenes for the Ravi Shankar documentary called Raga. John Paul and George's individual projects outside of the band in 1968 were further evidence of the group's separation. In John's case, the album cover of his experimental collaboration with Yoko Ono called Two Virgins featured the couple completely fucking naked, literally. Like, um, it's really weird. And, uh, yeah. This was a gesture his bandmates found to be um, bewildering and quite unnecessary. Like, John, we don't want to see. We don't want to see your willy, and we don't want to see Yoko's bits and pieces either. Like, what's going on here? Like, what the fuck is this? So, like, I get the concept of the two virgins. I understand. But, like, I don't want to see that, okay? I don't think anyone wanted to see that. Um, so John was going on his own thing. You know, they were all creating their own solo work while they were still with the Beatles. And that's why each of their individual solo albums came out kind of fast after their breakup. That's why they were already starting to kind of form their own music at this point. So on August the 20th, John and Ringo were working on overdubs for Year Blues in Studio 3 and visited Paul in Studio 2 while he was working on Mother Nature's Son. The positive spirit of this particular session disappeared kind of immediately, and engineer Ken Scott later claims that you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Ringo, he felt like he wasn't an integral part of the Beatles anymore compared to the other three, and so he left the group on the 22nd of August during the session for Back in the USSR. He just felt like he wasn't as important, that the other Beatles had more important roles in the band and that he wasn't on par with them. He felt very inadequate, so he left. It's kind of funny, you know, he said that he, you know, went over to John's house one day and he's like, John, I'm just not feeling very good. Like, I'm not feeling like, like, you three are so close and I'm not close. And John's like, I thought it was you three that were close. And then he's like, oh, what? So then Ringo goes over to like Paul's house and he says the same thing like, Paul, I'm just not feeling very good, yada, yada, yada. You three are so close. And Paul's like, I thought it was you three. And so Ringo's like, fuck this, I'm out of here. So Ringo left. He just didn't really want to deal with it anymore. In Ringo's absence, Paul played the drums on Dear Prudence. So there you go. And then for back in the USSR, the three remaining Beatles each made contributions on drum and bass. So eventually, they had to go talk to Ringo. So John, Paul, and George went over to Ringo's house and they asked him to reconsider joining the band and that he was important to them. And in a very, very sweet welcome back gesture from George, 
Ringo returned on the 5th of September to find his drum kit decorated with flowers, which is sweet. So now I'm going to break down all four sides of the White Album. There's going to be little bits and pieces of information and inspiration about the songs that I thought were very poignant to add because I thought it's really interesting. If you have a favorite song, I think it's nice to know a little bit of information about it. So let's start with side one. Paul wrote Back in the USSR as a parody of Chuck Berry's song Back in the USA and The Beach Boys. A field of recording of a jet plane taking off and landing was used at the start of the track and intermittently throughout the track. The backing vocals were sung by John and George in the style of the Beach Boys, and the track became widely bootlegged in the Soviet Union where the Beatles music was banned and it became an underground Russian hit, which is kind of interesting. Next is Dear Prudence, and this was one of the songs that was recorded at Trident Studios. John actually wrote the track about Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence Farrow. So the two of them were there, and Prudence Farrow apparently rarely left her room during the stay because she was committed to the meditation, and so they were trying to call her out to, you know, hang out with everybody instead of isolating herself, and so that's what Dear Prudence is about. And then Glass Onion. Glass Onion was the first backing track recorded as a full band after Ringo's short leave of the band. John deliberately wrote the lyrics to mock fans who claimed to find hidden messages in songs and referenced other songs in the Beatles catalog, i.e. The Walrus with Paul refers back to I am the Walrus. And then Paul overdubbed a recorder part after the line I told you about the fool on the hill as a deliberate parody of the song that was put on Magical Mystery Tour. Many lines refer to each earlier Beatles songs, including Strawberry Fields, Forever, I'm the Walrus, Lady Madonna, The Fool on the Hill, and Fixing a Hole. The song refers to the Cast Iron Shore, which is a coastal area off southern Liverpool known to local people as the Cassie, and Lennon dismissed any deep meaning to these mysterious lyrics. He said this, I threw the line in, the walrus was Paul, just to confuse everybody a bit more. It could have been, the fox terrier is Paul. I mean, it's just a bit of poetry. I was having a laugh because there'd been so much gobbledygook about pepper. Play it backwards and you stand on your head and all that. Obladi Oblada was written by Paul as an imitation of ska music. The track took a surprising amount of time to complete, with Paul demanding perfectionism that annoyed everybody. Jimmy Scott, who is a friend of Paul, suggested the title and he played bongos on the initial take. And what was really funny was Jimmy Scott demanded a cut of publishing when the song was released. I don't know why you would ask for that because you only came up with the name and you played bongos once. You don't deserve a cut, to be honest. Anyway, the song was credited to Lennon-McCartney, as it typically would be. After working for three days on the backing track, the work was scrapped and replaced with a new recording. John hated the song, calling it Granny Music Shit, while engineer Richard Lush recalled that Ringo disliked having to record the same backing track repetitively and pinpoints this session, in particular, as a key indication that the Beatles were going to break up. Paul attempted to remake the backing track for a third time, but this was abandoned. After a few takes, and the second version was used as the final mix. 
So the second version that they did was the one that they went with. The group, aside from Paul, of course, had lost interest in the track by the end of the recording and they refused to release it as a single because they were done with the whole thing. Moving on, Paul recorded Wild Honey Pie on the 20th of August at the end of the session for Mother Nature's Son. It's typical of the brief snippets of songs he recorded between takes during the album sessions. It's kind of a filler tune. It's not really anything strong in particular. So the continuing story of Bungalow Bill was written by John after an American visitor to Rishikesh left for a few weeks to haunt tigers. Weird. Yoko sings one line and co-sings another, while Chris Thomas, who is a friend of theirs, plays the Mellotron, including improvisations at the end of the track. The opening flamenco guitar was a recording included in the Mellotron's standard tape library. Now, on to one of the bigger tracks on the album, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. This was, of course, written by George Harrison. This was written, actually, during a visit that he made to his parents' home in Cheshire. He first recorded the song as a solo performance on acoustic guitar on the 25th of July. He was unhappy with the group's first attempt to record the song, and so he invited his friend Eric Clapton, name drop, to come and play on it. Clapton was unsure about guesting on a Beatles record, but George said that the decision was nothing to do with them, it's my song. Clapton's solo was treated with automatic double tracking to achieve the desired effect. He gave George the guitar that he used, which George later named Lucy. And this is what George had to say on the song. The Eastern concept is that whatever happens is all meant to be. Every little item that's going down has a purpose. While My Guitar Gently Weeps was a simple study based on that theory. I picked up a book at random, opened it, saw, gently weeps, then laid the book down again and started the song. Now we are completing side one with Happiness is a Warm Gun. This one is one of my favorite Beatles tracks of all time, but this is one of my favorite tracks on the album as a whole. And so, Happiness is a Warm Gun evolved out of several song fragments that John compiled into one large piece. The basic backing track ran to 95 takes due to the irregular time signatures and variations in style throughout the song. The final version consisted of the best halves of two takes edited together. John later described the song as one of his favorites, while the rest of the band found the recording to be rejuvenating as it forced them to re-hone their skills as a group, playing together to get it right. John came up with the title Happiness is a Warm Gun from an article in May 1968 in an issue of American Rifleman. This magazine was on the piano in the recording studio and it belonged to George Martin. He had brought it with him one day just to kind of, you know, flip through it. John recalled his reaction to the phrase, I just thought it was a fantastic, insane thing to say. A warm gun means you just shot something. So... The song begins with imagery inspired by an acid trip that John and their friend Derek Taylor experienced, and then the three sections basically were broken down and they were described by John as the first part was the dirty old man, the middle part was the junkie, and then the third bit of the song is called the gunman. So it's almost like a story, like a beginning, middle, and an end. Now we're moving on to side two. 
So Martha, My Dear is a song that was written by Paul for his dog, Martha, who was a sheepdog. The entire track is played by him, backed with session musicians, and features no other Beatles. And George Martin composed a brass band arrangement for the track. Following up is I'm So Tired. This was written in India when John was having difficulty sleeping. It was recorded at the same session as Bungalow Bill. The lyrics make reference to Walter Rayleigh calling him a stupid get for introducing tobacco into Europe. While the track ends with John mumbling, Monsieur, Monsieur, how about another one? This became part of the Paul is dead conspiracy theory, which I have not even touched upon. I think that might be a separate little short episode I do in the future because that is a whole mess of stuff. That is just so far beyond what I could probably put in just this episode. It's a lot. It deters from the main story of the Beatles, but I just wanted to put this in there. So this became part of the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory when fans claimed that the track, when it was reversed, they could hear Paul is Dead Man, miss him, miss him, miss him. I probably will talk about Paul is Dead in a later episode down the road, maybe. If you want to hear a Paul is Dead episode, let me know. I'll do it. All right, the next one to follow is Blackbird. Okay, so this is a solo Paul song. The bird song that appears on the track was taken from the Abbey Road sound effects collection and was recorded on one of the first EMI portable tape recorders, interestingly enough. Um, Blackbird was written as a direct response to the civil rights movement happening in the U.S. at the time, and Paul saw the story of a young girl at the time. Her name was Ruby Bridges, and maybe some of you know her story. This happened in Little Rock, and she was the first black girl, first black student, actually, who integrated into a white public school. And if you are familiar with her story, if you look up photos, like, she's literally a little six-year-old girl, you know what I mean? Like, she's not a threat to anybody, but, like, she's being escorted in the school by these security guards. People are taunting her. It's really, really, really sick. It's disgusting. She just wants an education and she's getting, you know, thwarted at all sides. So Paul sees this on TV and he is so inspired to write something. And of course, in England, a bird is slang for a lady, a woman. So he put black bird together. It's kind of a play on words. It makes sense. It's a nice little tune, I think. The next tune is Piggies, and George wrote this one as an attack on greed and materialism in modern society. And interestingly enough, George's mother and John helped him complete the lyrics. Cool. <laughs> His mother had a little part to play on that one. Rocky Raccoon follows this. It evolved from a jam session with Paul, John, and Donovan in Rishikesh, India. The song was taped in a single session and was one of the tracks that George Martin felt was filler and put it on only because the album was a double and they needed a whole lot of music to fill a double album. This follows by Don't Pass Me By and this was Ringo's first solo song for the band ever. This was a song totally written by Ringo. He had been toying with the idea of writing a self-reflective song for some time, possibly as far back as 1963. So it took him a long time to come up with this kind of song. It went by the working titles of Ringo's Tune and This Is Some Friendly. The basic track consisted of Ringo drumming while Paul played piano. 
but George Martin composed an orchestral introduction to the song, but it was rejected as too bizarre and left off of the album. Instead, a bluegrass fiddle part was added instead. All right, now we're getting on to one of the more interesting tunes or more offbeat tunes, Why Don't We Do It In The Road? Paul wrote this in India after he saw two monkeys going at it <laughs> in the street and he wondered, hmm, why, why are humans too civilized to do the same thing? Just go in the fucking street and just start going at it. Like, why, why can't humans do that? It's like, what? <laughs> okay, interesting concept, Paul. But anyway, <laughs> he played all the instruments except for drums on this track, which were contributed by Ringo. The simple lyric was very much in John's style and John was annoyed not to be asked to play on it. Paul suggested it was tit for tat as he had not contributed to Revolution 9. Oh God, I'm not even going into that. Okay, moving on. Paul wrote and sang I Will with John and Ringo accompanying on percussion. In between takes for this song, the three Beatles broke off to play some other stuff. A snippet of a track known as Can You Take Me Back? Which of course, I think we all know if you play this album after I Will, you can hear can you take me back where I came from? It was put between Cry Baby Cry and Revolution 9. So they were kind of putting in these random fillers again because they didn't want that three second of silence in between each track. They wanted it to flow. So that's why they put that little can you take me back portion in between. So the next song is Julia and this is one of the more deeper referential songs that John creates. This was the last track to be recorded for the album and it features John on solo acoustic guitar, which he played in a similar style to Paul on Blackbird. This is the only Beatles song on which John performs alone, totally alone, and it's a tribute to his mother, Julia Lennon, and I talked about her death and how it impacted John in the first part of the Beatles trilogy. Basically, she was killed accidentally in a car crash when John was 17, and the lyrics deal with the loss of his mother, Julia, and it also coincides with his relationship with Yoko because in some points, John has nicknamed her mother, which is strange, but so it coincides with his loss of his mother, Julia, and his relationship with Yoko because in the song, he says, Ocean Child calls me and Ocean Child is referred to Yoko as well. So Yoko helped write the lyrics to the song as well, but the song was still credited to Lennon McCartney as expected. And that is the end of side two. Now we're moving on to side three. So now we're going on to Birthday, which is one of the uh, most random songs I think that they could have ever come up with. According to Paul, the writing partnership of Birthday was 50-50, John and me, made up on the spot and recorded all on the same evening. He and John were inspired to write the song after seeing the first UK showing of the rock and roll film The Girl Can't Help It on TV and sang the lead vocal in the style of the film's musical star, Little Richard. They were so influenced by Little Richard, they absolutely loved him. After the Beatles taped their track, Yoko and Patty Boyd actually added backing vocals as well. So when you play Birthday, it's a little extra Easter egg. You can hear um, Patty Boyd, George's wife at the time, singing her part in the back, which I think is really cute. Following with that is Your Blues, and John wrote Your Blues in India. Despite meditating in the tranquil atmosphere, John still felt very unhappy as reflected in the lyrics of the song. The style was influenced by the British blues boom of 1968, which included bands like Fleetwood Mac, 
Cream, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Jeff Beck, and Chicken Shack. So this is kind of John's contribution to that kind of British blues feel. Following that is Mother Nature's Son. This was written by Paul while he was in India and worked on it in isolation from the other members of the band. I love this tune. I think it's a really nice, simple, beautiful acoustic song that he does. I think it's really, really nice. He performed the track solo alongside a George Martin scored brass arrangement. Okay, so this one might be a little bit interesting to some people. The next tune here, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. (gasps) Oh my god, that's a mouthful. I have actually quite a lot of information on this one because I thought it was quite an interesting song and I didn't really know a whole lot about this one, so I thought you guys might benefit from a little bit more information as well. So, Everybody's Got Something to Hide evolved from a jam session that was originally left untitled. The final mix was sped up by mixing the tape running at 43 hertz instead of the usual 50. George Harrison claimed that the title came from one of the Maharishis saying, pretty much everyone's got something to hide, except me. That was a phrase that the Maharishi used to say, and then the me and my monkey part came later. So John's comments on the song in his last interview in 1980 confuses events since it predates his relationship with Yoko and the start of recording for the White Album. So it's kind of unsure where exactly this whole concept came from. It could have definitely come from the India uh, trip that they were on. It could have somewhat predated that. So it's all kind of though um, collected together. John said the lyrics addressed his bandmates' disapproval of his affair with Yoko, which began soon after he and his wife Cynthia returned from India. And this is according to John's recollection of the song. That was just a sort of nice line that I made into a song. It was about me and Yoko. Everybody seemed to be paranoid except for us two who were in the glow of love. Everything is clear and open when you're in love. Everybody was sort of tense around us, you know. What is she doing here at the session? Why is she with him? All this sort of madness is going on around us because we just happen to want to be together all the time. Paul believed that the song was about heroin as the term monkey is often associated with the drug. Paul said, John started talking about fixes and monkeys. It was a harder terminology, which the rest of us weren't into. John referred to the song also in the same 1980 interview as, As I put it in my last incarnation, everyone's got something to hide except me and my monkey. It means really that one cannot be absolutely oneself in public because the fact that you're in public makes you, you have to have some kind of defense or whatever it is. So there you go. That's a bit of uh, (laughs) info on that one. The next one is Sexy Sadie. This was written as... Maharishi by John. That was the working title of the song before it was Sexy Sadie. Shortly after he decided to leave Rishikesh. In the same 1980 interview, John acknowledged that the Maharishi was the inspiration for the song. I just called him Sexy Sadie. And again, this was kind of in reference to that whole thing where while they were in India, Magic Alex said that he had um, some allegations about the Maharishi with sexual advances towards women. And so John kind of made that into a song. So that's Sexy Sadie. Now, Helter Skelter, one of the most interesting Beatles songs on this album, One Million Percent. This was written by Paul and was initially recorded in July as a blues song. This was not supposed to be a hard rock song. This was supposed to be a blues song. However, 
One day, Paul was opening up the papers and he saw an interview by The Who, predominantly uh, Pete Townsend of The Who. And in the article, Pete was saying, oh my God, we just made the most dirtiest, filthiest, hardest, grittiest song ever. And Paul was super, super jelly. And so Paul went back into the studio and he said, right, we have to make a better, harder, faster, stronger <laughs> tune to them. And so that's what Helter Skelter eventually became, became known as this kind of crazy, hard rock, metal influenced kind of song. The band performed the initial takes live and included long passages during which they jammed on their instruments. Because these takes were too long to fit on the album, the song was shelved until September when a short, new version was made. The session was chaotic, but nobody suggested to any of the Beatles that they were out of control. So the Beatles were freestyling on this one. They didn't know what they were doing. George Harrison reportedly ran around the studio holding a flaming ashtray above his head, quote, doing an Arthur Brown. The studio version of the album includes almost a minute more music than the mono version, which culminates in Ringo famously shouting the, I've got blisters on me fingers, <laughs> which I love. I love that whole part at the end. That's really funny. So maybe some of you know the connection with Helter Skelter to a famous um, American mass murderer named Charles Manson. Yes. Okay. Charles Manson and his cult. Charles Manson, weirdly enough, is also connected to the Beach Boys. Maybe that's another story for another day. However, Charles Manson was a massive Beatles fan. And when he heard Helter Skelter, he's like, oh my God, I have this massive revelation. So Charles Manson was unaware that the term Helter Skelter is British English for a spiral slide found on a playground or a funfair. Charles Manson is a fucking idiot and he doesn't know this. He assumed that the track had something to do with descending into the pits of hell. He's a fucking idiot. What do you expect? This was one of the tracks that led to Charles Manson believing the album had coded messages referring to an apocalyptic war, which led to his movement of the same name and thus um, inspired a lot of shit that he did. Okay, there you go. I won't go into that, of course. So the final song on side three is George Harrison's Long, Long, Long part of a chord progression that he took from Bob Dylan's Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. The recording section for the basic track was one of the longest the Beatles ever undertook, running from the afternoon of the 7th of October through the night until 7 a.m. the next day. Paul played Hammond organ on the track. Boom, okay, we are three down, one to go. We are on side four in the last side. So Revolution 1, which is just known, of course, as Revolution, right? This was the first track recorded for the album with sessions for the backing track starting on the 30th of May. The initial takes were recorded as a possible single, but as the session progressed, the arrangement became slower with a more laid-back groove. The group ended up choosing the take with a six-minute improvisation that had further overdubs added before being cut to the length heard on the album and a brass arrangement was added later. So following that is Honey Pie. I think this is probably another filler track, to be quite honest with you. This was written by Paul as a means of imitating the 1920s flapper dance style. The opening section had the sound of an old 78 shellac record overdubbed, while George Martin arranged a saxophone and clarinet part in the same style. 
John played the guitar solo on the track, but later said he hated the song, calling it Beyond Redemption. Next is Savory Truffle, and this was named after one of the types of chocolates found in a box of Macintosh's Good News, which Eric Clapton enjoyed eating, and since he was a part of these sessions for While My Guitar Gently Weeps, you could probably assume that Eric Clapton brought along with him a box of chocolates, and he enjoyed those savory truffles. And the track featured a six-piece saxophone arrangement, so there you go, pretty simple. Now, this next one was quite interesting. I didn't really know this. I thought this was interesting. So the following Cry Baby Cry, this was written by John, and he began writing this in late 1968. The lyrics were partly derived from the tagline of an old TV commercial. George Martin played harmonium on the track, and demos indicate that John composed the song as late as 1967. The original lyrics were Cry Baby Cry, Make Your Mother Buy. John described to biographer Hunter Davies how he got the words from an advertisement, but some of the lyrics of the song are loosely based on a 18th century nursery rhyme called Sing a Song of Sixpence. Now, this totally blew my mind when I put this together, but here, here it is, right? Here's just part of the nursery rhyme. It goes like this. Sing a song of sixpence, a bag full of rye, four and twenty naughty boys baked in a pie. Doesn't that sound like, cry, baby, cry, make your mother sigh, you're old enough to know better, cry, baby, cry. It just makes so much sense, like, boom, yes, absolutely. Um, okay, Revolution 9, I'm gonna skip over that one, all right, yeah. John wrote the song Goodnight as a lullaby for his son, Julian, and he wanted Ringo to sing on it, which is quite sweet, isn't that sweet? You would kind of want John to sing it, though, because it's a lullaby for his son, Julian, but all right, anyway, so Ringo sang on this one. It's still very, very sweet anyway. The early tracks featured just John on acoustic guitar and Ringo singing on it. George Martin scored an orchestral and choral arrangement that replaced the guitar in the final mix. Boom! That is the whole album covered front to back. Now, getting on to the singles, Hey Jude and Revolution. Hey Jude was recorded at the end of July 1968 during the sessions for the album but was issued separately as a single three months before the album's release. And maybe some of you know the story behind how Paul created Hey Jude, but Hey Jude was written by Paul as a reassuring song for John's son, Julian. Again, John and his wife, Cynthia, were in the midst of a divorce. There's a lot of cute photos of Paul and Julian hanging around and Julian's having a nice time. And Paul just kind of one day was thinking about Julian and he felt really bad for the young boy. And so he wrote, hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. It's, it's a really reassuring sweet song for Julian, which was cute. Initially, he was going to name the song Hey Jules because Jules is the nickname for Julian. But he changed it to Hey Jude because Jude, I think, sounded better. So that's Hey Jude. And then Revolution was the B-side. This was a different version of the album's Revolution 1. John wanted the original version of Revolution to be released as a single, but the other Beatles said that it was too slow. So the single featured a new, faster version with heavily distorted guitar and an electric piano solo by Nicky Hopkins. This was the first release on Apple Records and ultimately the band's most successful single in the U.S., 
Although no singles were taken from the album in the UK or America, Obla Di Obla Da, backed with While My Guitar Gently Weeps, was released in other markets. The single was a commercial success in Australia, Japan, Austria, and in Switzerland. The White Album, which I mentioned, was issued on the 22nd of November 1968, and three days later in the U.S. It was the third album to be released on Apple Records following George's Wonderwall music and John and Yoko's Two Virgins. The record was referred to as the White Album immediately upon release because, again, it was just known as The Beatles because of the embossing on the album with just their name on it, but it became known as The White Album. Each copy of the album featured a unique stamped serial number, quote, to create the ironic situation of a numbered edition of something like 5 million copies, right? Which is kind of funny. So in 2008, an original pressing of the album with the serial number 5 sold for 19,201 pounds on eBay. And then in 2015, Ringo's personal copy of number 1 sold for a world record $790,000 at auction. During production, the album had the working title of A Doll's House. This was changed when the English prog rock band Family released the similarly titled Music in a Doll's House earlier that year. And actually, a painting of the band by John Byrne was also considered for the album cover. However, they went with the blank cover. So in the UK, the album debuted at number one on the 7th of December 1968 and spent eight weeks at the top of the charts. Upon its release, the album had extremely positive reviews from music critics. Others were kind of annoyed by the fact it was a double album, and it said that the music lacked the adventurous quality that was on Sgt. Pepper's. According to author Ian Inglis, Whether positive or negative, all assessments of the Beatles drew attention to its fragmentary style. So the release coincided with John's weird album, Two Virgins, right? Of course. And it actually coincided as well with public scrutiny of John's treatment towards Cynthia and of his and Yoko's relationship. And also, the British authorities were less tolerant towards the Beatles at this time when the London Drug Squad officers arrested John and Yoko in October for marijuana possession, a charge that was claimed to be false. They're thinking, right, how do we come up with another album? What is our plan of action, right? So this is where Let It Be comes into play. And so I think we all know about the movie that came out initially upon the release of the album as well back in 1970. And it's been said that that version of the movie portrays a very negative aspect of the Beatles that has been broadcasted everywhere. And like that's been taken almost as gospel because that's the only source material that we can physically see that, yeah, there's an altercation that's happening. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. This is where the Beatles have a bit of conflict with each other. However, I think we know, again, this year, this past Thanksgiving, Peter Jackson, who is the director of so many amazing films like The Lord of the Rings, he came across all of this amazing, juicy, unedited, raw footage, like hours and hours and hours of footage that was left on the cutting room floor of the movie. 
And he came upon this and he took it upon himself to release this as a three-part series, six hours in total, roughly. And he portrayed these recording sessions that the Beatles were undertaking accompanying the rooftop performance as very positive, like they were all happy and they were all, you know, joking with each other amidst, of course, you know, some tension that was happening in the middle of it all. But it just goes to show like this really sets into perspective that the Beatles were actually still just good friends and they loved each other and they were there for each other. So I want to make sure that you guys have it in your mind that this Let It Be session that I'm going to talk about, while yes, there was some stuff that was happening behind the scenes, the boys still had a love for each other as friends and comrades and they were having fun together and they were just joking around with each other. He set the record straight for Paul and Ringo because both Paul and Ringo had this notion in their mind reflecting back that, oh yeah, because of the movie, it made us remember those times differently with a negative lens. But this made them see that, wait a minute, I remember it was actually a happy time. So I just wanted to put that little asterisk out there. And also, if you haven't seen the Get Back series, I would definitely suggest it. It's fantastic. So I just wanted to say that. So. Without further ado, let me jump into Let It Be and let's dive right into it together. So some of you might be a little bit confused as to Let It Be and Abbey Road, the fact that Abbey Road was their official last album, but that Abbey Road was released first before Let It Be. So pretty much they had music for both Let It Be and Abbey Road. They were working on Let It Be first, and then the music left over from the Let It Be sessions was to be Abbey Road. But they wanted the album for Let It Be to be released alongside the movie. And the movie took some time to, you know, edit and come together. So that's why Abbey Road was released first, and then Let It Be came out alongside the movie later. So I hope that kind of clears up maybe some of the confusion as to why Abbey Road was released last, but it wasn't their last album. I hope that makes sense. So concerned about the friction over the previous year, Paul was eager for the Beatles to perform live again. He thought that maybe this would bring the Beatles back together because they hadn't performed live, obviously, since 1966. And they kind of wanted to see what they could do because they wanted to branch out and do something different. So in early October 1968, he told the press that the band would soon play a live show for a subsequent broadcast in a TV special. The following month in November, Apple Corps announced that the Beatles had booked the Roundhouse in North London from the 12th through the 23rd of December and would perform at least one concert during that time. When this plan came to nothing, Dennis O'Dell, the head of Apple Films, suggested that the group be filmed rehearsing at Twickenham Film Studios in preparation for their live performance. Since he had booked the studio space there to shoot the film The Magic Christian, which Ringo was going to star in. So that's why they went to Twickenham Studios first. And Michael Lindsay Hogg had agreed to direct the project, having worked with the band on some of their promotional films. The project's timeline was dictated by George Harrison being away in the U.S. until Christmas and Ringo's commitment to begin filming his role in The Magic Christian 
in February 1969. The band intended to perform only new material and were under pressure to finish writing a new album worth of songs. So they had about three weeks to come up with 14 new songs. And that was very ostentatious, but they ended up doing it. It was decided that the 18th would serve as a potential dress rehearsal day, and then the 19th and the 20th would serve as concert dates. So now the Beatles have moved into Twickenham, and these rehearsals quickly disintegrated into a hostile lethargy. John and Yoko Ono have descended into their heroin addiction after their arrest on drug charges in October, and Yoko had a miscarriage by John. And so it was just, they were such a mess. They were all over the place. And because of these things, John had been unable to supply his amount of new songs for the project. Because of all this, John had an icy distance from his bandmates and he scorned Paul's ideas. And this is where some of the resentment kind of came from. George presented several new songs for consideration, some of which were dismissed by John and Paul. And Paul's attempts to focus the band on their objective were construed as overly controlling, particularly by George Harrison. The atmosphere in the film studios, the early start each day, and the cameras and microphones added to the arguments. When the band rehearsed two of us on the 6th of January, Paul and George had a bit of a spat about the lead guitar part. And this is pretty much what the whole argument during the Get Back movie originally was focused on. It was focused on this one little minute moment where Paul and George were having that spat. And Paul said, you know, I want you to play the song like this and you're not playing it like this. And George is like, well, I'll play it however you want me to play it or I won't play it at all. And it just kind of became the center focal point for the film and why everyone thinks that this session as a whole with Twickenham and later at Apple was such a bad one. During lunch on the 10th of January, John and George had a heated disagreement in which George berated John for his lack of interest with the album and with the TV project in general. After lunch on the 10th of January, George announced that he was leaving the band and told the others, see you around the clubs. Ringo attributed George's exit to Paul's domination over him, so that's kind of the reason why George wanted to peace out. It was decided that at some point they would all have a meeting at Ringo's house with their respective wives and try to get George back into the group. However, this didn't go over very well, and George ended up leaving to Liverpool for a few days, presumably to maybe see his family his parents, um, to just kind of get back, maybe in touch with his roots in Liverpool. Um, but that's where he went. And the rest of the band eventually came back into the studio to keep recording the album. And that's when that really sad moment happens in the series when Ringo shows up and initially it's just Ringo for a while. And then Paul and Linda eventually show up. And then Paul kind of dejectedly like looks around at everyone. And then Paul says, and then there was two and he started to cry which is really sad because, yeah, of course, looking back on it, that is really, really sad. And of course, we know that Paul and Ringo are the two Beatles that are living today. And to hear him say, and then there was two, in retrospect, is actually really kind of sad. So eventually, 
A few days later, George returns and they have another meeting at Ringo's house with George to bring him back in, and this was more successful. He came back under the condition that they abandon all talk of a live performance and instead focus on finishing the album. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of what they were trying to do. They were just trying to focus on coming out with this album here. George also demanded that they stop working at Twickenham Film Studios where the sessions had begun and he wanted to relocate to the newly finished Apple Studio. And everyone agreed that it would just be so much better over there because the sound at Twickenham was not great at all. It was horrible. And this is where also at the same time, the idea for the TV movie was scrapped and that they were to salvage the film and keep on filming to come out with a feature film instead. So that's where now we get the Get Back film. The band's return to work was delayed due to the poor quality initially of the recording and mixing equipment designed by Magic Alex, the stupid fucking person, one of those stupid people in this whole thing along with Alan Klein. And Magic Alex installed all of this equipment at Apple Studio in the basement of the Apple Corps building at 3 Savile Row in London. But when they got there and they heard the horrible quality of this stuff, they were pissed. So they had to wait until George Martin, who came back, and he went to borrow two four-track recorders from the EMI studios, and he also agreed to bring on audio engineer Glenn Johns. So thanks to George Martin and Glenn Johns, we have a much better sound, and Magic Alex can fuck off. And sessions followed at Apple Studios on the 21st of January and ended on the 31st of January along with filming. So now they're in the Apple studio, however, new strains started to develop between the band regarding the appointment of a financial advisor. So even though they had created Apple Core, they still needed a financial advisor to help them with the money that they were coming upon. Because again, Brian was kind of somewhat the appointed one to look after their finances. And of course, he was their manager. So without Brian, they didn't really know what to do. And the need for a financial advisor had become evident without Brian Epstein to help. So this is where Alan Klein comes into play. And I don't like Alan Klein. He is a snake in the grass. I mentioned Alan Klein in my Verve episode. If you know about the Verve and Bittersweet Symphony and the whole thing with Alan Klein, you know the fuckery that he gets up to. However, John, George, and Ringo liked Alan Klein, and Alan Klein had managed the Rolling Stones and Sam Cooks and likes of other people like that. But Paul wanted Lee and John Eastman, father and brother of Linda Eastman, who Paul was dating at the time. So now Paul is bringing Linda into the equation here, and he wanted his future father-in-law and brother-in-law to run their affairs, but that got vetoed by the Beatles because they wanted, well, the rest of the Beatles, because they wanted Alan Klein. But Paul and Linda were to get married on the 12th of March, and John and Yoko got married a few days later on the 20th as well. So that's also an interesting kind of side fact there. So because they couldn't really come to an initial agreement, both Alan Klein and the Eastmans were temporarily appointed. And Alan Klein was the Beatles business manager, and the Eastmans were their lawyers. However, when you mix family and business, of course, that doesn't always end up very well. 
but further conflict ensued and financial opportunities were lost due in part to Alan Klein and his fuckery in trying to win over the Beatles' money. On May 8th, Alan Klein was named sole manager of the band and the Eastmans were dismissed as the Beatles' lawyers. Okay, Paul refused to sign the management contract with Alan Klein. He was like, I'm not a fan of this guy. I don't want him to come on. Glenn Johns also didn't like him. He was outvoted. They were like, Alan Klein's doing this and you can't say otherwise. And so Paul was like, all right, whatever. So Alan Klein came on board and yeah, we all know the fuckery that happens there. Okay. But the atmosphere in the band was improving during the sessions for sure. I mean, it was definitely improving. You can see on the Get Back series that they're Again, they're having fun. They're just kind of like laughing and joking around. It's just a fun time, you know? To help kind of even further the improvement of the atmosphere, George Harrison invited keyboardist Billy Preston to join in the sessions as well. He was just passing through one day and he came in to say hello to the Beatles because back when the Beatles were in their Hamburg days, they actually ran into Little Richard and Little Richard had Billy Preston as his keyboardist. And then later on, this is when Billy comes back and they're like, oh, Billy, you know, like it's so funny how the whole get back session, the whole series, they're reminiscing on the old days in Hamburg. Like you can tell that's where they really love to reminisce back to. So when Billy comes in, it's almost like it just uplifts the vibe even more. And it's just so nice. And obviously Billy is a great keyboardist. And so what Billy had to add to the flavor profile of the mixing here was so much richer and more vibrant because he added that really spicy keyboard flair and it just really elevated the vibe so much more. So Billy became involved in this project and that's why he's on the album, if you maybe wondered before. So while they're in the midst of doing all of this, they initially had the idea for the live show that they were going to do to be overseas. They wanted something really ostentatious. Like they're like, oh, what about the pyramids in Egypt? What about like over here in Greece or oh, what about this, that and the other, you know? And they were like, well, no, how's that going to work out? Because if we play to an audience that doesn't speak English, that's not going to work over well. So they're like, okay, how about this? Like, how about we have a competition and the people who like win this competition, you know, they can, they can win a chance to get shipped over overseas with us. And they're, they're all English speaking. So they can come on this boat and they can hop over and they can hear us play and it's going to be fine, you know? And they're like, no, 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 that's not going to work. George is like, you're all fucking mad for thinking that this idea is going to work. Like, how is this going to work? Logistically, it can't. So they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, whatever. Sure. So then how about maybe here in England? How about maybe like on Primrose Hill, you know, um, around London, you know, I think that's a nice area. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll think about that. We'll ponder that. However, because the project kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed back, and the switching up of the TV series to the film, it just got like pushed back even more. So when push came to shove, the Primrose Hill location wasn't able to be used anymore. So they didn't have the time to use that anymore. So Michael Lindsay Hogg and Glenn Johns and Paul, they were all kind of in talks with each other about, well, where the hell do we record this live album? Like, what are we doing here? So an idea came about where they just record on the roof of EMI. It's simple. It's easy. It's very convenient. They go right up to the rooftop and they play. Simple as that. And so that's where the birth of the whole rooftop performance came from. 
their super awesome roadie Mal Evans organized for a stage to be built on the Apple rooftop and the band's equipment to be set up there. And initially it was like, well, how is all of this going to be set up on here? Like the roof is a bit rickety. Like, can it support all of the weight? You know, it was a bit um, scary of a thought initially, but they're like, listen, we're going with it. It's going to be fine. So the instruments used during this rooftop performance were John's stripped-back Epiphone Casino guitar, Paul's signature Hofner bass, George's new custom-made Rosewood Fender Telecaster, and Ringo's Ludwig drum kit, along with an electric piano for Billy Preston. Glenn Johns and assistant engineer Alan Parsons purchased women's stockings from a local Marks and Spencers to protect the microphones from the winter wind and plans to hire a helicopter to capture aerial footage were abandoned. Can you imagine a helicopter zooming past the noise? The noise already on Saville Road where this was happening was already so loud. It was actually mind-blowing how loud it was. I didn't really expect it to be that loud, to be honest. You're probably wondering, well, how did they capture the audio from this rooftop performance to be put onto the album? Well, The audio was recorded onto two 8-track recorders in the basement studio at Apple by Glenn Johns and Alan Parsons. Michael Lindsay Hogg's crew used six cameras to film several angles of the performance, and in addition to cameras located on the rooftop, one camera was placed without permission on the roof across the street. In addition to that, a camera was hidden behind a two-way mirror in the reception area of the building, And two cameras were on the street to film interviews and reactions from people just kind of passing by, which I think is one of my favorite aspects of this whole thing. It was really funny seeing the different reactions to the band. Some people were like, this is awesome. I want more of this. And some people were like, ew, no, get this away from me. I don't want it. It's too loud, you know. It was great. There was one northern man who was there being interviewed at the end. And I don't know who the person was that was interviewing these people on the street, But he asked this man, like, would you be all right if any of the Beatles married your daughter, if you had a daughter? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'd be happy because they have money. (laughs) I don't know why. That man is just kind of funny to me. But yeah, the reactions from the people on the street, they're just loving it. They're having a great time. Well, not all of them. Some of them are Karens, okay, and they don't like it. But other people are like, yeah, I want more of this. Let's go. Let's do it. Everything was set up. The band was inside. They were waiting to come on. Up until the last minute, the Beatles actually were still undecided about performing the concert. Michael Lindsay Hogg recalled that they had discussed it and then gone silent. Like, do we do this? Should we not do this? What do we do here? And then it went silent. And then John said, fuck it, let's do it. So then they go ahead and they push forward and they do it. So the four Beatles and Billy Preston arrived on the roof at around 12.30 p.m., pretty much lunchtime. When the musicians started playing, there was confusion among members of the public, of course. They were like, what the fuck is going on here? Many were on their lunch break. They weren't sure what was happening. As news of the event started to spread and people started to hear the music being played, crowds began to congregate in the streets and on the roofs of nearby buildings. It's madness. It's pandemonium in the streets up in here. So yeah, like it was just a mess. Half of the people were like on board with this. The other half were like, what the fuck is this shit? Get it out of here. And the Metropolitan Police were like, get the fuck out of here. Um, It was kind of funny. Like they were stalling the police from going up onto the roof. 
as long as they could. Like Mal Evans was trying to talk them down. Like the receptionist was trying to talk them down, saying all these like things just to get them to not go on the roof. Um, Mal Evans was like, I mean, I'll turn their PAs off if you want, like some of their amps. And they're like, yeah, 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 turn off the amps and we'll see. We'll go from there. And then eventually the police officers ended up on the roof, which was really funny. I had to wonder, like, do you think the police did this as a sneaky way to actually get a free access pass to listen to the Beatles up front and center? So they waited a long time, but I'm like, listen, they probably said all this shit and they made a big fucking ruckus just to get up there to see the Beatles for free. That's what I'm thinking. But anyway. So because they got interrupted by the police, Paul was actually kind of happy about this because Paul suspected all along that they would get interrupted. But this is what he wanted. He wanted this reaction. He said that the Beatles should perform their concert in a place we're not allowed to do it. Like we should trespass, go in, set up, and then get moved. So that's kind of interesting. Like Paul really was trying to say something with this rooftop concert. So the police went up on the roof just as the Beatles were beginning the second take of Don't Let Me Down. The band began the final take of Get Back immediately after Don't Let Me Down with Paul improvising the song's lyrics. So when the police got up on the rooftop, everyone noticed that the police was there. And Paul came up with these lyrics on the spot. During Get Back, he said, You've been playing on the roofs again and you know your mama doesn't like it. She's gonna have you arrested. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. So, you know, there's no surprise as to what songs they played on the rooftop concert. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on the Get Back series at the end. It's really, really interesting. The concert came to an end with the song Get Back and Maureen Starkey and Yoko Ono were also on the roof and Maureen shouted, woohoo, you know, cheering them on. And Paul said, thanks, Mo. And it ended officially with John saying this really, really famous quote. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we've passed the audition. So now we're going to talk about some of the mixes, right? Okay, so this is where shit kind of goes sideways. So on December 15th, the Beatles again approached Glenn Johns to gather up their recordings to create the album. They had the stuff from Twickenham, they had the stuff from Apple, and then they had the stuff from The Rooftop. So they had a monstrumental go at trying to compose an album from all the recordings. The instructions for this whole culmination was the songs must match those included in the unreleased Get Back film. Of course, meaning the songs you feature on the film need to be featured on the album. It's just common sense. So between the 15th of December through January 8th, 1970, new mixes were prepared. Glenn John's new mix left out Teddy Boy as the song did not appear in the film. It added Across the Universe and I Me Mine on which only George, Paul, and Ringo performed as John had already left the band. I Me Mine was newly recorded on the 3rd of January 1970 as it appeared in the film and no multi-tracking recording had yet been made. And the Beatles once again rejected the album. They were just like, what the fuck is going on here? This doesn't sound great. Like, what? Like, what is this? So, anyway. So, the Glenn Johns mix of the album, the Beatles weren't really impressed by it, okay? They just weren't really a fan of all of this stuff here. So anyway, the final mixing here, you have Get Back and Don't Let Me Down, which were the singles that were released in April 1969, and Let It Be was the A-side of the band's single that released in March 1970. 
These three tracks were recorded live from the rooftop performance. Three following tracks were recorded live from the rooftop performance. I've got a feeling One After 909 and Dig a Pony. So those were the three songs that were taken from the rooftop and put on the album. An additional four tracks were recorded live in the studio with the band members playing together in a single take and without overdubs or splicing. So these songs were Two of Us, Dig It, Get Back, and Maggie May. Seven of the tracks were released with the original plans for the Get Back project, whereas the album versions of For You Blue, I Me Mine, and Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road included editing, splicing, and or overdubs. Don't Let Me Down, recorded live in the studio two days before the rooftop concert, was also left out from the album. And of course, I have to talk about some of the songs here. So, the two of us. Paul mentioned in an interview that the lyrics were written in reference to car rides that he and Linda would take in England without a destination in mind, and he meant to get away from the pressures of the Let It Be album recordings. So while things were hectic, him and Linda were just kind of driving around and she would say all the time, let's just get lost. And so they would get lost together on the English countryside. And that's where the lyrics for the two of us came together. The song is also an ode to one of John and Paul's influences, the harmonies of the Everly Brothers. Across the Universe follows and... It's said that one night in 1967, the phrase, words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup, came from John after listening to the voice of his then-wife Cynthia Lennon. He said, I was lying next to my first wife in bed, you know, and I was irritated, and I was thinking, she must have been going on and on about something, and she'd gone to sleep, and I kept hearing these words over and over, flowing like an endless stream. I went downstairs and turned into a sort of cosmic song rather than an irritated song, rather than a, why are you always mouthing off at me? The words were purely inspirational and were given to me as, boom, I don't own it, you know, it came through like that. The flavor of the song was heavily influenced by the Beatles' interest in transcendental meditation when they went on their India trip. And when the song was composed, right? So that's when the song was mainly kind of done between 67, 68, and then they finally did it on Let It Be. And this is where the mantra Jai Guru Deva Om came from. It came from these kind of moments where they went to India and they were getting into transcendental meditation. And that's one of the chants that they would do. So that's where that comes from. I Me Mine was the following song and George had this to say about it. I kept coming across the words, I, me, mine, in books about yoga and stuff, about the difference between the real you and the you that people mistake their identity to be. I, me, and mine is all ego orientation, but it is something which is used all the time. No one's frightened of saying it, everyone's playing it, coming on strong all the time, all through your life, I, me, mine. And he said that in 1997, so basically... I Me Mine was written during this time where all the Beatles were talking about me, 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 what about me, what about me, 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 you know, and George is like, oh, all through the day, I Me Mine, you know, so it's kind of like, um, you know, it's a bit of a retrospective song about, you know, the time where the Beatles were kind of at crossroads with each other. The following is Let It Be, and this will be the album's official title name as well, and Let It Be came to Paul in a dream one night, and in this dream, his mother Mary, who had died when he was about 15, came to him in this dream, and he said at the time, you know, 
when he reflected upon this. He said that, you know, he was going through some struggles and in this dream, his mother said, it's all right, just let it be. And when he woke up, he was like, ah, I feel so much better. Just let it be. And so he had a piano next to his bed and he was playing the chords and he came up with let it be. So Maggie May, this is not to be confused with Maggie May from Rod Stewart, okay? Maggie May here is an old Liverpool song, kind of like a Liverpool folk song, if you will. And this is just the Beatles kind of messing around pretty much. It was a brief extract performed by them in a joking manner during their get-back sessions in 1969 at a point in the proceedings when they were warming up in the studio by playing old rock and roll and skiffle songs that they had known and played in their teenage years. They adopted the heavy Scouse accents for the performance to accompany it, of course. The song had been a staple of the repertoire of the Quarrymen, the skiffle group formed by John when he was in high school. That evolved into the Beatles in 1960. I talked more about that in my first episode. One After 909 is the following song, and in John's 1980 Playboy interview, John explained, That was something I wrote when I was about 17. I lived at 9 Newcastle Road. I was born on the 9th of October. It's just a number that follows me around, but it's all a part of 9. And then Paul said, it's not a great song, but it's a great favorite of mine because it has great memories for me and John and I trying to write a bluesy freight train song. There were a lot of those songs at the time, like Midnight Special, Freight Train, Rock Island Line. So this was the one after 909. She didn't get the 909, she got on the wrong one after it. So there you go. Okay, so the long and winding road follows, and I have to say, yeah, this song in particular has the one that got the most treatment to be so different from the original album, and then the one that was released and remastered a lot later by Paul himself, and the long and winding road was written by Paul. This was initially just going to be a simple, elegant piano song, nothing too fanciful, but of course, it got the works with the orchestra in the background. So he wrote this and he came up with the title, The Long and Winding Road. During one of his first visits to his property at High Park Farm near Campbelltown in Scotland, which he purchased in June of 1966, the phrase was inspired by the sight of a road stretching up into the hills in the remote highlands surrounding the lochs and distant mountains. He wrote the song at his farm in 1968, inspired by the growing tension among the Beatles. And of course, the last song is Get Back. The lyrics addressed attitudes towards immigrants, actually, in the United States and in the United Kingdom. So this was intended to be a political song. Though these lyrics were meant to be a parody and a criticism of those prejudiced against immigrants, later during the same session, the subject of immigrants came up again in an improvised jam that has become known as Commonwealth. So when you watch the Get Back series, you'll hear them do the Commonwealth version of Get Back. As the song kept progressing, it became more about like a, like a storytelling versus mostly about politics and immigration. 
So now the packaging, right? The album cover, the idea for the original cover of the album featured a photograph of the Beatles by Angus McBean taken in the interior stairwell at EMI's Manchester Square headquarters. So if you recall, the Beatles album, Please Please Me, the album cover where they're looking down over the stairwell at EMI Studios, they wanted to mimic that and take the photo replicated again for the album cover for Let It Be. And they took these photos, right? However, these weren't to be used for the album cover. If you're a big Beatles fan, then you know that the recreation that they do for the Please Please Me album cover, where they're looking over the stairwell at EMI headquarters when they're obviously older in this stage, that photo is put on what's known as the Blue compilation album. The album cover that we know of now was designed by John Kosh and includes individual photos of the four band members. The album title appears in white text above the images, but as on the Abbey Road album and other Beatle albums, the cover does not include the band's name. So I'm leaving for now all of the finalization of Let It Be because this is where they start to then produce Abbey Road at the same time because for the most part, they kind of are done with Let It Be for now. Then they move on to Abbey Road because again, like I mentioned before, They worked on Let It Be, they worked on Abbey Road. Abbey Road was pushed first because they wanted the album Let It Be to release at the same time as the Let It Be film. So they had to wait for the movie to be released first before they could release Let It Be. So the first sessions for Abbey Road began on the 22nd of February 1969, only three weeks after the Get Back sessions in Trident Studios. There, the group recorded a backing track for I Want You, She's So Heavy, with Billy Preston accompanying them on the Hammond organ. No further group recording happened until April because Ringo's commitments to the film The Magic Christian, which I mentioned before. After a small amount of work that month and a session for You Never Give Me Your Money on the 6th of May, the group took an eight-week break before recommencing on the 2nd of July. John, who initially rejected George Martin's proposed format of a continuously moving piece of music, wanted his and Paul's song to have separate sides of the album. So again, recording continued through July and August, and the last backing track for Because was taped on August 1st. Overdubs continued through the month with the final sequencing of the album coming together on the 20th of August, the last time that all four Beatles were to be present in the studio together. Paul, Ringo, and George Martin have said that the recording sessions were decently positive, while George Harrison said, we did actually perform like musicians again. John and Paul enjoyed working together on the non-album single The Ballad of John and Yoko in April, sharing friendly banter between the takes. But nevertheless, there was a significant amount of tension in the group. Paul had an argument with John during the sessions. Yoko, of course, had become a permanent presence at all of the Beatles' recordings since the White Album and clashed with the other members. It just became really, really hectic, and he wasn't a fan of Yoko hanging around anymore. Halfway through the recording sessions in June, John and Yoko and Yoko's daughter, and actually John's son Julian were involved in a car accident. But what's interesting was Julian recalled the story back to his mother, Cynthia, in an interview many, many, many years later. 
And Julian said that he was the only one that wasn't actually hurt in the accident, that John Yoko and Yoko's daughter were the ones that were hurt, which is interesting. Um, so, you know, during this accident, you know, they were recovering and a doctor told Yoko to rest in bed. So what does John do? He had a bed installed in the studio so that she could observe the recording process from the bed. Like, can you fucking believe it? I can't believe it. Uh, John ultimately said that he disliked Abbey Road as a whole and felt that it lacked authenticity, calling Paul's contributions music for the grannies to dig and not real songs. Describing the medley on the back as junk, just bits of songs thrown together. So we're going to get into it. We're starting with side one of the album, Come Together. This was an expansion of Let's Get Together, a song that John originally wrote for Timothy Leary's political campaign against Ronald Reagan in the States. John and Yoko had met Timothy Leary while they were doing their bed-in for peace in Montreal, and Timothy asked John to make him a song for his political campaign. So this is what Come Together is about, pretty much. I mean, it's a great tune, but like, you know, the whole like come together right now over me is basically what the whole thing for his campaign was about. A rough version of the lyrics for Come Together was written by John and Yoko at the second bed in event in Montreal. The song was later involved in a lawsuit brought against John because the opening line Come Together, Here Come Old Flaptop, was lifted from a line in Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me which is interesting. A settlement was actually reached a few years later in 1973 in which John promised to record three songs from Levy's publishing catalog for his next album. So Come Together was later released as a double A-side single with Something. And this is a George song. George was inspired to write Something during the sessions for the White Album by listening to James Taylor's Something in the Way She Moves from his own album, James Taylor. It's obviously well known that something was written for his wife, Patty Boyd, at the time. After the lyrics were refined during the Let It Be sessions, the song was initially given to Joe Cocker, but was subsequently recorded for Abbey Road. Cocker's version appeared on his album, Joe Cocker, that November, and something was John's favorite song on the album, and Paul considered it the best song George had ever written. John contributed piano to the recording, and while most of the part was actually removed from the mastered, like the final version of the song, traces of his piano part remain in the final cut, notably on the middle eight section before the guitar solo. The song topped the U.S. charts for one week, becoming the Beatles' first number one single that was not a Lennon-McCartney composition. So good on you, George, for doing that. It was also the first Beatles single from an album already released in the UK. Apple's Neil Aspinall filmed a promotional video which combined separate footage of the Beatles and their wives, which, again, that's one of the most, I think, one of the most popular music videos. You know what I'm saying? You get me. So, following that is Maxwell Silver Hammer, Paul's first song on the album. This one was performed by the Beatles during the Let It Be sessions initially. If you can see in the series, you have their roadie, Mal Evans, hitting an anvil with a hammer. And that's the initial setup for Maxwell Silver Hammer. And Paul wrote the song after the group's trip to India and wanted to record it for the White Album, but it was rejected by the others as being too complicated. 
John said that it was more of Paul's granny music and he ended up leaving the session. He spent the next two weeks with Yoko and didn't return to the studio until the backing track for Come Together was laid down on July the 21st. George was also tired of the song, saying, We had to play it over and over again until Paul liked it. It was a real drag. Ringo was a bit more sympathetic to the song, saying, It was granny music, but we needed stuff like that on our album so other people would listen to it. Fair enough, I guess. So, their roadie Mal Evans, like I said, he played the anvil sound in the chorus, and this track also makes use of George's Moog synthesizer played by Paul. In 1994, Paul said that the song epitomizes the downfalls of life being my analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue, as it so often does, as I was beginning to find out at the time in my life. I wanted something symbolic of that, so to me, it was some fictitious character called Maxwell with a silver hammer. I don't know why it was silver, it just sounded better than Maxwell's hammer. <laughs> and the following is another Paul song, Oh Darling. This was written in a doo-wop style, and it was subsequently re-recorded in April with overdubs in July and August. Paul attempted recording the lead vocals only once a day, and he said, I came into the studios very early every day for a week to sing it by myself because at first my voice was too clear. I wanted it to sound as though I'd been performing it on stage all week. And that's how he got his voice to sound really, really rough on this one. Uh, John thought that he should have sung it, remarking that it was more of his style. All right, now we're getting on to Octopus's Garden. Woohoo! This is another Ringo song, or a one that Ringo sang. But it was also in part written by him as well. It was inspired by a trip to Sardinia with Peter Sellers and his yacht after Ringo had left the band for two weeks with his family during the sessions for the White Album. So this is where he went. He went on vacation. And on this trip to Sardinia with Peter Sellers and his wife, he ordered fish and chips for lunch. But instead of getting fish, he got squid. He said that it was the first time he'd eaten squid and he said it was okay, a bit rubbery, tasted like chicken. All right. Uh, the boat's captain then told Ringo about how octopuses travel along the seabed picking up stones and shiny objects with which to build gardens. And Ringo was like, oh my god, this is the song for me, guys. <laughs> Ringo's songwriting was further inspired by his desire to escape mounting hostility among the Beatles. He would later admit that he had just wanted to be under the sea, too. Mm. Ringo received a full songwriting credit and composed most of the lyrics, although the song's melodic structure was partially written in studio by George. Alright, now one of my favorite songs on this album, I Want You, She's So Heavy. This is so good. This was written by John about his relationship with Yoko, and he made a deliberate choice to keep the lyrics simple and concise. The finished song is a combination of two different recording attempts put together. The first attempt occurred in February 1969, almost immediately after the Get Back Let It Be sessions with Billy Preston. This was subsequently combined with a second version made during the Abbey Road sessions in April. The two sections together ran to nearly eight minutes, making it the Beatles' second longest released track. John used George's Moog synthesizer with a white noise setting to create a wind effect that was overdubbed on the second half of the track. 
During the final edit, John told Jeff Emmerich to cut it right there at 7 minutes and 44 seconds, creating the sudden, jarring silence that finishes the first side of Abbey Road. What was interesting, though, was even though he cut it at this specific point, apparently the recording tape would have run out within about 20 seconds as it was anyway. He cut it at pretty much just the perfect time. The final mixing and editing of the track occurred on the 20th of August, 1969, the last day all four Beatles were together in the studio. All right, now we're going on to side two with Here Comes the Sun. This was written by George in Eric Clapton's garden in Surrey during a break from the band's stressful business meetings. Harrison said this in his autobiography. Here Comes the Sun was written at the time when Apple was getting like school, where we had to go and be businessmen. Sign this, sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever. By the time spring comes, you really deserve it. So one day, I decided I was going to sag off Apple and I went to Eric Clapton's house. The relief of not having to go see all those dopey accountants was wonderful and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote, Here Comes the Sun. The basic track was recorded on Ringo's birthday, July the 7th, 1969. George sang lead and played acoustic guitar. Paul provided backing vocals and played bass, and Ringo played the drums. John was still recuperating from his car accident and didn't perform on the track. George Martin provided an orchestral arrangement in collaboration with George, who overdubbed a Moog synthesizer part on the 19th of August immediately before the final mix. Though this wasn't released as a single, the song attracted a lot of attention and major, major critical praise. Like, this was such a praise song that was made. And since digital downloads have become eligible in the charts, it reached number 56 in 2010 after the Beatles' back catalog was released on iTunes. And it was also the most streamed Beatles song on Spotify. Unbelievable. So good, though. George recorded a guitar solo for this track that didn't appear in the final mix. It was rediscovered in 2012 in footage of George Martin and George's son, Danny Harrison. Listening to it in the studio was released on the DVD, Living in the Material World. So if you want to see that, that's where you got to find it. The track Because is the next one, and this was inspired by John listening to Yoko playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on the piano. He recalls that he was lying on the sofa in our house listening to Yoko play. Suddenly I said, can you play those chords backwards? And she did, and I wrote Because around them. Which is actually really interesting. I'll have to see if I can like compare the two later. The track features three-part harmonies by John, Paul, and George, which were then triple-tracked to give nine voices in the final mix. The group considered the vocals to be some of the hardest and most complex they attempted. George played the Moog synthesizer, and George Martin played the harpsichord that opens the track. The remainder of Psy 2 consists of the long melody, also known as the long one, which was recorded over July and August and blended into a suite by Paul and George Martin. So the two of them really worked on coming through mixing the long one together. 
While the idea for the medley was Paul's, George Martin claims credit for some structure, adding he wanted to get John and Paul to think more seriously about their music. The first track for the medley was the opening number, You Never Give Me Your Money, and this was the first one that was recorded. Paul has claimed that the band's dispute over Alan Klein and what Paul viewed as Klein's empty promises were the inspiration for the song's lyrics. The track is a suite of varying styles ranging from a piano-led ballad at the start to the guitars at the end. Both George and John provided guitar solos with John playing the solos at the end of the track. And then it transitions into The Sun King, which, like because, showcases John, Paul, and George's triple-tracked harmonies. Following it are John's Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, which were both written on their trip to India in 1968. The inspiration for Polythene Pam is, in 1980, John said this, That was me remembering a little event with a woman in Jersey and a man who was England's answer to Allen Ginsberg. I met him when we were on tour and he took me back to his apartment and I had a girl and he had one he wanted me to meet. He said she dressed up in polythene, which she did. She didn't wear jackboots and kilts. I just sort of elaborated. Perverted sex in a polythene bag. Just looking for something to write about. England's answer to Allen Ginsberg refers to Royston Ellis who was an English writer which John knew from when the Beatles played at the Cavern Club. He also described the inspiration for the song as a mythical Liverpool scrubber dressed in her jackboots and kilt. The song is sung in a very strong Liverpudlian Scouse accent. Of course, you can hear it strongly. These in tune are followed by four of Paul's songs. She came in through the bathroom window, golden slumbers, carry that weight, and the end. So, She Came In Through the Bathroom Window was actually written after a fan entered Paul's house through his bathroom window. Golden Slumbers was based on Thomas Decker's 17th century poem set to new music, and Carry That Weight was simply just reprising elements from You Never Give Me Your Money. And The End features Ringo's only drum solo in the Beatles' entire catalog. Hello, that's major. The drums are actually mixed across two tracks in true stereo, unlike most releases at the time, where they were hard pan left or right. So that's interesting. 54 seconds into the song are 18 bars of lead guitar. The first two bars are played by McCartney, and the second two by George, and the third two by John, and the sequence is repeated a few more times. George suggested the idea of a guitar solo in the track, and John decided that they should trade solos, and Paul voted to go first. The solos were cut live against the existing backing track in one take. Immediately after John's third and final solo, the piano chords of the final part of the song begin. The song ends with the memorable final line, And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And Her Majesty was simply just a little bit of a filler by Paul where he initially just kind of derived this out of nowhere. It was just a bit of fluff, pretty much. I'm not going to go too in-depth into that, but that's basically the end. However, Paul disliked the way that the medley sounded when it included Her Majesty, so he asked for it to be cut out. Second engineer that was in the studio, John Curlander, had been instructed by George Martin not to throw anything out. 
So after Paul left, John attached the track to the end of the master tape after about 20 seconds of silence. So it just kept getting put on the final mix, even though Paul suggested to leave it out. And when they ended up hearing the final mix, they actually liked it, so they kept it on. Original U.S. and U.K. pressings of Abbey Road do not list Her Majesty on the album's cover nor on the record label, making it a hidden track. Hey, cool. Okay, so now we're getting on to the cover of Abbey Road, which is the most famous cover that they've ever done, sans a few others, but Abbey Road I think is the most famous album cover of all time. So the creative director for Apple Records designed the album cover. It's the only original UK Beatles album sleeve to show neither the artist's name or the album title on the front cover. You know, this was used despite EMI claiming the record wouldn't sell without any of this information. This was done anyway. So the creative director, his name is Kosh, he later explained that we didn't need to write the band's name on the cover. They were the most famous band in the world. And yeah, he's correct, right? The front cover was a photograph of the group on the crossing based on ideas that Paul had sketched and taken on the 8th of August 1969 outside of EMI Studios on Abbey Road. Of course, the famous crosswalk. I'm sure a lot of you have done that crosswalk. I've done that crosswalk when I went to Abbey Road. It was awesome. So this happened at 11.35 that morning. Photographer Ian McMillan was given only 10 minutes to take the photo while he stood on a stepladder and a policeman held up traffic behind the camera so that he could take the photos. McMillan took six photos, which Paul examined with a magnifying glass before deciding which would be used on the album sleeve. In the image selected by Paul, the group walked across the street in single file from left to right with John leading, followed by Ringo, Paul, and George. Paul is the only one that's barefoot. He's the only one. And everyone else is wearing designer suits except for George Harrison. And these suits were designed by Timothy Nutter. Yeah, that's his actual name, okay? (laughs) And a white Volkswagen Beetle is to the left of the picture, parked next to the crossing, which belonged to one of the people living in the block of flats across from the studio. After the album was released, the number plate, which read LMW281F, was repeatedly stolen from the car, which is madness. I don't know who has that now, but my God, (laughs) can you imagine? In 2004, also, news sources published a claim made by retired American salesman Paul Cole that he was the man standing on the road next to the picture. The name of Abbey Road actually is a pretty interesting story of how that came to be. Um, Paul did an interview on Howard Stern a couple years ago, and they put it out recently again. Paul said that they initially, him actually, (laughs) had the idea of making the album title named Everest after Mount Everest, which is really interesting, but I mean, Everest just doesn't have the same ring to it as Abbey Road does. Because, you know, he wanted something strong and powerful that could represent the album, and after some time, they were like, no, Everest doesn't really sound that great. So Paul thought, well, you know what? What about Abbey Road? Because then all we would have to do for the album cover is walk out the door, take some photos, and then walk back in. (laughs) So naming the album Abbey Road was mainly out of convenience. However, isn't that so funny? Like, they were going to name the album Everest, you guys. Abbey Road, 
has been completed and now we are moving forward. But of course, we know where this ends. So it was around this time that John formed his new group called the Plastic Ono Band, in part because the Beatles had rejected his song Cold Turkey. And on July 4th, the first solo single by a Beatle was released, which was John's Give Peace a Chance, credited to the Plastic Ono Band. While George worked with such artists as Leon Russell, Doris Troy, Billy Preston, and Delaney and Bonnie through to the end of the year, Paul took a hiatus from the group after his daughter Mary was born on the 28th of August. On the 20th of September, John told Paul, Ringo, and Alan Klein, George wasn't present, that he was leaving the group. Or in his words, he said he wanted a divorce. And this was six days before Abbey Road was released. And he agreed to withhold a public announcement to avoid undermining the sales of Abbey Road. So at this point, John was officially done. Abbey Road entered the album charts in England at number one in October and stayed there for a total of 17 of its 81 weeks in the chart. And in the U.S., it spent 11 weeks at number one during its initial chart stay of 83 weeks. Abbey Road sold 4 million copies in its first two months of release. The single Something and Come Together followed in October, while John released the Plastic Ono Band Cold Turkey song the same month. So it was official that John was done and people were like, hmm, that's interesting what's going on there. So now they release Abbey Road, right? They still have Let It Be because they were waiting for the film to be released first. So while they were kind of waiting for the movie to be finished, they were going back to the Let It Be album to completely finish up all the mastering for the album. And so they were working on George's I Me Mine. In March, they rejected the work that Glenn Johns had done on the project. And so Alan Klein gave the tapes over to American producer Phil Spector. And, like, Paul was so not happy with Phil Spector's treatment to some of the songs. Paul was like, this is dumb, this is stupid, like, I can't even believe, like, I can't even believe this is happening to me. However, John defended Phil Spector's work in his interview with Rolling Stone saying this, He was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit with a lousy feeling toward it, ever. And he made something out of it. He did a great job. John actually chose not to give credit to Glenn Johns for his contribution as producer. When EMI informed George Martin also that he would not get a production credit because Phil Spector produced the final version, Martin had this to say, I produced the original and what you should do is have a credit saying, produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector. So Paul's demands that the alterations to the song be reverted were ignored and he publicly announced his departure from the band on April the 10th, 1970, a week before the release of his first self-titled solo album. So things are kicking off. And finally, on the 8th of May, 1970, Let It Be was released. Its accompanying single, The Long and Winding Road, was the Beatles' last, and it was released in the U.S., but not in the U.K., weirdly enough. I think because Paul just wasn't happy with the final mix of it, so he's like, we're not even having this as a single. Like, this is not what, this is not what it's going to be. 
So the Let It Be film followed that month later, and it would win the 1970 Academy Award for Best Original Song Score. And now this is what I mean where there's the Phil Spector original album, right? That was all we know from the Let It Be album. But in 2003, in November, Paul went back to correct the album. And he went back to remaster the whole thing because he hated what Phil Spector had done to the album. So this is what Let It Be Naked is. If you've heard about Let It Be Naked, this is what this is. And I listened to this actually for the first time the other day. And I have to say, I quite enjoyed it. Although some of the songs were pretty much somewhat the same sounding, The Long and Winding Road was the most obvious one that sounded vastly different. Obviously, on the original, you have the orchestral. It's like a sweeping, like almost romantic ballad kind of tune. And Paul didn't want that. That's not what he intended. So on this one, Let It Be Naked, it was so stripped back. It was just a beautiful, simple piano thing going on with a bit of accompanying instrumentals from the other members. It was great. I enjoyed it so much more than the original, to be honest. It's fantastic. I would recommend listening to that one if you haven't listened to it either, like myself. So Paul filed suit for the dissolution of the Beatles' contractual partnership on the 31st of December 1970. Legal disputes continued long after the breakup, and the dissolution was not formalized until the 29th of December 1974, when John signed the paperwork terminating the partnership while on vacation with his family at Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. And say la vie, that is the end of the Beatles as we know it. And of course, we all know what happens from here on out. The four go on to create their own solo work. They have children, they get married. John dies in 1980, George dies in 2001, and we are left with Paul and Ringo still making music to this day. And that is the end of the Beatles. Wow. I know it's going to be a long episode, and I know that the Beatles series that I did here was a really long series, but I couldn't give it just one episode. It wouldn't have been enough. Obviously, there's the solo work of the Beatles and a bit more information there. If you do want me to go in depth about each of their solo works, then let me know. Um, But yeah, thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed, and I hope that you learned something today that you never learned before and you hadn't known about before. I don't even know really what to say anymore. I think I'm going to just end it here. So I hope you guys have an awesome day. I will see you guys next Wednesday with a new episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.